You're listening to Artistic Finance, show 102. On today's show, Nicole co-hosts with me to interview painter Brett Slater. We discuss the importance of connections and relationships in order to get your art noticed, why you, yes, you absolutely must put yourself out there, how Brett got his first art into galleries, and how he continues to show in galleries in New York and Europe, what percentage a gallery takes when an artist has a showing or sells art through that gallery, and finally, how to price art. If you are a patron, thank you. Thank you very much. Patrons pledge a monthly amount in support of our mission to help freelancers and artists with the business side of art. You, yes, you, could become a patron for as little as $3 a month. In exchange, you'll get a private podcast feed, early releases of the episodes, and bonus content. This week's bonus episode is an entire extra hour with Brett. Patrons can access that at patreon.com artisticfinance. Fear not if you aren't ready to become a patron. I will give you those outtakes absolutely free if you email me at artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com. We create the extra content as an incentive and a reward for patrons, but we will always provide access to the extras for those who want it but aren't quite ready to join as patrons. Now those emails come directly to me and I always send off the requested content as quickly as possible, no questions asked. And if you're looking for another way to support the show, we are conducting a listener survey and that needs to be filled out by this Friday, June 10th. It would be incredibly helpful if you would take a moment and give your two cents on what you like and what we can fix. Wherever you listen to the show, tap read more and find that link or you can find it at artisticfinance.com. It's 10 multiple choice questions and will absolutely take less than two minutes to complete. And already the feedback is helpful. We've had two people suggest the topic of pensions. And one of those people said, I'm sure you covered this in a previous episode. Well, it turns out we haven't. <laughs> Additionally, people want to know how to raise money for projects and how to invest in a Broadway show. So if you have anything, anything at all that you would like to change about the show, now is your chance. So thank you in advance. And without further ado, Let's get to the show. You're listening to Artistic Finance Podcast, where your host, Ethan Steimel, interviews successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire artists to grow their wealth. Welcome and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Ethan Steimel, along with my co-host for today, Nicole Steimel. Hello. This is being recorded May 30th, 2022. Today we have painter Brett Slater on the show. And if you're a longtime listener, you'll know him as the painter who supplied us a piece of art for our 6K investing special. So Brett, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. We love your work. Oh, how we love your work. <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> and uh, your aesthetic, for whatever reason, is just something that we jive with. Oh, also, we're we are on video for this one. For the first time ever, we're on video. If you want to see some of Brett's work, you can also watch the video for this because it's in the background as we're yes. moving along. There's some things in progress. So we own three pieces of your work, and we're very proud of that. Now, presumably, you know who buys your work. And I'm, I'm saying that because you don't make like a ton of art. 
Like it, like it's plenty, but it's not like a thousand paintings a year. It's really recommended to every artist for sure that you keep a list and you ask constantly kind of of the galleries that are dealing with your work to keep that documented so you could know who your client tell kind of is. Now that I'm in my 30s, that's something that I cared greatly about and uh, want to know when I began selling work in my early 20s, I was kind of just happy to to do the business with the gallery. I didn't really know how important it was in a lot of senses to, to know who their clientele was. I kind of wish that I would have kept a more detailed register, but I did not. So yeah. there's many so, that I don't know. So so do you, um, I'm just going to say like, is this an Excel list with the painting name, sort of like details about it, and then who purchased it? And then is, is that how you keep track of it? Uh, I should. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll check in with you in a year. Well, Brett, well, do you have an Excel spreadsheet? We'll make one for you. I love Excel. <laughs> but say after, like, for instance, we bought something of yours, we'll say Hayful Grape. So how long after the fact does somebody notify you? Like, hey, like, so-and-so bought Hayful Grape. And how long after the fact? Pretty recently. From that point, I had put down, you know, security and first and last on a place. I think that I was like, oh, you know, like, hey, it would be great if something sold out of this small show because I could use it. And I just went by the gallery. I had seen that all four of the pieces hanging had sold. Oh, amazing. And I was like, whoa, that's awesome. But that, they never, nobody ever notified me or anything like that. And they certainly, well, I assume they had to pay you, right? They, they did. And the, yeah, eventually, I think really soon after that, I had gotten well, a check in the mail. I mean, the, the, the gallerists are great people and they're super nice. I I imagine they were extra busy at that time. You know, I wouldn't have even known that they had sold until I one day got a check in the mail. And then when they did give you the check, they didn't tell you who bought them. Right? I don't think so. I mean, I mean, certainly we didn't think to tell you that we purchased one of your... I didn't know till more, till 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 a while after that, right? I don't yeah. really remember... Yeah, I, I think you found out when we had actually purchased the second one. So we're now like three, four years later. And you told me. I think you tagged on my Instagram or something. We, we were moving apartments. And That's I, right. Yep, we, we were moving apartments. And That's I was right. like, oh, we got to wrap these up. Or maybe I asked you like, hey, how do I wrap <laughs> these up for transport? And I was I, like, wow, you guys got those great. <laughs> I had no idea. I remember I had no idea, though. Yeah. So this, so. so this is from the buying perspective, right? So we bought a, a piece. They keep a list of all your pieces that they have in the gallery. So they basically send us this PDF that shows a, the paintings they have of yours, the price, the size, the date, stuff like that. And so we had that. And so then a couple years later, we actually knew that they had these pieces. And we thought, oh, you know, maybe these. So then we went down and they pulled them out out of like the flat file. And like we looked at them. And they have clients who, since the very first showing that I've had, have consistently bought my work. And so they've got kind of like a very small ovra or, well, they have a small chrono a chronological kind of purchase list of uh, my work for the past uh, nine years. 
course I'm super thankful for these people. And then there's been a friend of mine who I met a show I had at that gallery when I had a, a two person show with Otis Jones there. Um, Jan Fisher, who's been following me and my work as well. And, um, kind of purchasing work as as the years go go by yeah i mean i'm super clearly thankful for for people like you guys and and them who keep up with me and and uh who support yeah the, the work i i mean we might talk about this later but i know at one point you were saying that somebody bought a painting of yours or something for like ten thousand dollars there was a five or, or a was it five or six? I think it was a five work sale like recently that was, well, not that recently. Wow. I mean, it was mm -hmm. about a year ago now. Five works together. That was pretty much my most uh, financially frugal sale yeah. of all, you know, ever. Yeah. Um, which yeah. was Amazing. through 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 my friend who's an advisor. When you said $10,000 to me, I was like, well, that's more than all of our three combined <laughs> so it was yeah it was it was five and it was uh and the 10 was that's that was my half i think it the total was was 20 oh oh wow. yeah that's okay. even bigger even better yeah. <laughs> this is i mean this Very is great cool. for, for uh, this is it's super yeah. great but it's it's you know it's small mm -hmm. it's small prize for a lot of yeah, artists sure, yeah. out there okay all right we're, we're gonna get into the, like the pricing in a minute but can you just really quickly give us a Reader's Digest version of you? I'm, I'm from New York. I was born in the Bronx and I uh, was raised in Westchester. And I graduated from uh, uh, SUNY Purchase, uh, School of Art and Design at SUNY Purchase, uh, with a degree in painting and drawing with the BFA. So I knew I needed time. I really was enticed by the idea of, oh, well, with an MFA, you can teach college level you can adjunct uh and maybe teach a few classes which adjuncting is tough work and it doesn't pay too much but it gets you a foot in the door mm -hmm. and you can begin your tenure as a professor i guess so to speak uh, which i've never done yet um i never used my degree for that reason yet that sounds familiar <laughs> grad school pointed me towards a couple of different um, veins or, 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 or ways mm -hmm. to go. And one of those things was, was being pointed towards who, who would then become my, my mentor, kind of Otis Jones. Did I miss how you got to SMU? Okay. So Len <laughs> Stokes, so he knew that I was going to go to grad school right away. Okay. So basically you got accepted to SMU and it sounds like you were certainly drawn to the fact that they said 90% of the people are going to get a full ride. It was almost a no brainer. It was like, mm -hmm. do I want to be in debt or do I want to not be in debt kind of deal? Yeah. So, so after SMU, so you're from Westchester, went to SUNY purchase, yeah, undergrad. Right? Mm -hmm. um, then went to SMU and then you're in Brooklyn. Now, did you go straight to Brooklyn after SMU? So I stayed. Um, so that was another vein that when I was in grad school, I learned about through my friend, Asia Martin. Um, Asia is also like you guys, a huge supporter of my work and a collector of mine. And so she was an art history major. She got a position at the Dallas Museum of Art in exhibitions. Mm -hmm. She started talking to me about, hey, what do you want to do after grad school? Like, I was like, oh, I, I don't know. And, and, and she was like, have you ever thought about being a preparator? I was like, I've never heard of that. And she was like, yeah, there's like, 
these people that like set up the exhibitions at museums, they're called preparators. Um, she talked to Vince Jones, who's was her friend uh, there. And she said, okay, Vince, I told Vince about you. I showed him your work. You know, he wanted to know a little bit about you. And he said that, yeah, he'd be okay to maybe take mm-hmm. you on like as a, like an intern. Was it a paid internship? No, unpaid. No, okay. Okay. I, I learned invaluable like skill just about the, you know, about the, the trade and about kind of what mm-hmm. it necessitates and got a really good little experience. So I had also be- befriended Otis Jones and he, um, some of the best work I'd ever seen. And it was really. Wait, I lost you at Dallas Museum of Art. My internship at DMA mm-hmm. was, it began in, in January, 2011. Mm-hmm. As did my studio assistant uh, ship uh, with, uh, for Otis Jones. And, and that's basically what I did um, for a few years after grad was be Otis's studio assistant. And, you know, this only happened because when Otis asked me to lunch, lunch. those lunch meetings, he, yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. And it turned out to like, we were just drinking coffee and talking about painting for like five hours till it got like dark, you know? Yeah. That's amazing. It was just a, such a vibe. And he really became your mentor and he still is kind of like that. Yeah, because you mentioned you were showing in Zurich with him. In, in two, so in 2014, we did have three two-person shows together. One in Dallas, one in New York, and then one in Zurich. I, and I'm assuming, I'm assuming that Otis took the lead there and sort of got you in with him? Or was it like a tag team thing where you both applied or both had the relationship? Yeah, the the Zurich and New York galleries, those were my galleries that I was represented by. Oh, okay. And the Dallas gallery was was his gallery that he and was- you brought him in and he brought you in. Okay. So yeah. you're kinda benefiting. That's a beautiful that. friendship. And yes, what what made you what made you return to New York after being in Dallas? Sorry. I my my sister had given birth to her first child and I really wanted to experience that and to mm-hmm. to be an, an uncle who was um present, present. and I never really had that I, I just wanted to to and my sister and I are super tight and I just you know I was like man this is really you know as the years passed by it was like am I how long am I going to do this for you know how long am I yes. going to be and so you made the move back to Brooklyn got it yeah. Well, yeah, cool. I had never I had never lived in the city before, mm-hmm. but but I wanted I had always wanted to and and um and it was time to move to back to New York, so why not do the thing and move to Brooklyn? I mean, I had known how how hard it would be and how expensive it was. And So you moved to Brooklyn by yourself and you just did the same thing you were doing in Dallas, you did the same kind of work. I guess you could say that. See, that's cool because you don't accept the whole, you know, starving artist thing. Like you didn't go back to borders or whatever. I respect. Got okay, okay I want to get to you making your own art while you're doing these other jobs. But just a, cu- a couple questions that I ask everybody and I want to ask you too. Um, what is a piece of art that you like? Well, that that, that there's one thing that, that strongly linked Otis and I, which was, before I had moved to Dallas, I had seen this uh, show 
um, in 2008 of uh, an older gentleman who is now recently um, passed away, Ron Gorchov. And Gorchov's work is um, often um, a saddle-shaped canvas that he kind of has copyrighted in a sense, this Mm. specific kind of shape for. Knowing about him was one of the first things that Otis and I really connected on because there's not too many other painters that I had talked to that had known who this painter was. And Otis had loved him since like the seventies because the guy's been around mm-hmm. and he had a major career and, and it, it kind of vanished and came back. And so I just uh, looked him up while you were talking and I definitely see, I see similarities <laughs> between you and him. Amazing. Wow. Um, Nicole hasn't really been on the show, so she's sort of new to to being actually present here. So I just want to ask that same question to Nicole. Nicole, oh, yes. what, what is the piece of art that you like? <laughs> oh, you guys are both going to cringe. <laughs> no. uh, so, yeah, growing up, we're not like big art people or, or whatever. But my first experience going to a gallery, my parents for my oldest cousin's wedding they went uh, and got a Thomas Kincaid painting, painter of light. <laughs> and so I remember I was like eight years old and going in my first ever art gallery. But, you know, son of a gun, like the it's a pretty it's pretty painting and it kind of stuck with me. So guilty pleasure, Thomas Kincaid. I, you know, I like all all things. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> okay. Now, Brett, uh, your financial personality. Are you good or bad with money? terrible horrible just the fact that materials and supplies cost so much a lot of my money i would still have if i was not literally dumping it on paint medium medium is what i use the most of a lot i use a lot of matte medium and it's super expensive so it, it's it's a killer, um, but it I mean it's part of the price that you pay, right? As in a sense, like it's not like it's a surprise. That's that's I've known about that, you know. And I do what I can to minimize costs. In my twenties, like you know, I did not give off, and like that really, <laughs> that really, you know, didn't set me up so great. Also, there were certain turns of events I wasn't super smart about in terms of apartment living and certain things. I mean, ultimately, I'm 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 always trying to to get better, spend less, save more. By the way, so everybody knows, I've been trying to get you on the podcast for two years, <laughs> and you like you were one of the first people I reached out to two years ago. I was like, hey, you know, would you talk? And you were just like, absolutely not. You know, like I'm I hate I, I hate money. I'm so bad with it. I have the and you, but I must say that I mean, you you live in an apartment and you have a studio in Brooklyn. You were living in Dallas for a while. You're married. So even though you say you're awful with it, I mean, you're still living your life, you know, still living a good life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Amen, Ethan. Thank you. And do I care about money? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Do I think that it's everything? Of course not. But I definitely recognize more and more how important it is, right? I, yeah. I think ultimately this all does also comes from a place of, of just anti-capitalism from, mm-hmm. from 
and and I and I still don't think capitalism is the greatest system. I think it's totally up. I mean, and but it, you know, I don't I don't necessarily have a better solution. You've got to play the game in mm-hmm. order to to live, right? Yeah. And yeah. I mean, but yeah. if I you know if if you look at just things in terms of objects, how many things that you have or whatever. I mean, I've, I've got more now than I, than I ever did. I'm certainly, I'm certainly doing better now than I ever have, but it's still always, I mean, I think that's just part of human existence is that, you know, the grass is always greener or, you know, you see this person or that person has this or that. So so they have so much and they're living so great and look how luxurious that their life looks like through social media or whatever. But that's social media, you know, everyone's only putting their good stuff out there. It makes you feel lesser, lesser than. And I think that I've been almost Mm -hmm. um, accustomed to, to, to feeling like that. I'm, you know, really, really, really lesser than like, yeah, but but one of the reasons why I'm so glad to talk to you is because I try very hard on this show to talk to artists who are like mid-career and and also who are like full-time artists. And when I say full-time, let's just say you, you don't just make out paint, make paintings and sell them, make paintings and sell them. Like um, as far as I know, you have, well, I'll call it a day job, <laughs> but like you have you have a job that pays you hourly and on a W-2 and then you make the art. Um, but to um, me, you're a full-time artist because one, that's all I ever see of you. I never see you doing the other job. Um, but um, like myself, as an example, people say, oh, what are you? What do you do? And I say, oh, I'm a lighting designer. Like, I also program lights. I assist other designers. I draft light plots. Sometimes I'm an electrician. Uh, Last uh, summer, I spent the summer archiving for John Lee Beatty. So, uh, But I always say like, oh, I'm a lighting designer. And then we also had a Broadway producer named Irene Gandhi on this show. And she's produced two Broadway shows. She has a Tony Award, but she's also a press agent. And like, that's sort of like what got her there. And, she and also then, has a fur company, like she sells furs. <laughs> um, within then, like eight years ago or something, she was a hostess down at a restaurant down in the village somewhere. Yeah, you got to do something, right? You got to do stuff. But But what I love about you is that like you're like a real artist <laughs> like it's not just it's a hobby not working at borders yeah you're not like it's this is like you <laughs> live breathe you you have like thought through all your sort of aesthetic and all this but, um, i want as part of today's conversation i i want to know like what your job is that's not painting so like what what have you done i guess since you've lived in new york and what are you doing now so i was lucky enough to have a a friend who was a preparator at MoMA. Uh, now there's a big team at MoMA, you know, that's gotten even bigger as the museum's expanded. And my friend, Mark Williams was, um, you know, he was an, I knew him as a, as a painter, as an artist, but you know, he had had this full-time job uh, at MoMA as a, as a preparator uh, for like 25 or plus years. I did, I, I, I moved to New York with that whole feeling of, wanting to reunite with my family kind of on a more regular basis. Mm-hmm. And I made that call rather impulsively. I had nowhere near enough money to really make it work. I kind of had, I know I had kind of some because I was able to secure a studio and an, and, and sublet uh, a place beyond just the trick of 
paying rent. There's studio rent, which was even more than my rent rent was. Um, you know, again, like you said, it's not a hobby. It's like a, it's a life. It's a it's a lifestyle, and it's what I. The times in my life where I've had to go on a very very small amount of time without having a studio, I felt quite alien to myself. Mm-hmm. It felt very diminishing and depressing and uh, um I've always used to before that I would always say like oh well you know people would ask me why do I make work why do you make artwork why do you make artwork and it was like if I don't then I'm gonna be a wreck like I'm gonna be super super depressed are people asking you that because they are under the assumption like oh artists don't make any money why would you do that maybe See, maybe some of them I hate that <laughs> stigma like, but, but professors would ask you, you know, to, 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 ch- to, not to challenge you, but I guess a little bit to challenge you to see like, you know, well, why are you doing this? Why does it matter to you? Why does, why is art important to you? Um, why do you want to be a part of this thing? All I know is if I don't, I'm, that's just what I want to do to that. I, if I don't make art then I'm going to not, and then I won't be happy. Now that was coming from somebody who, who hadn't yet built a career. Now as somebody who has built a career, I do know that now in order for me to feel good, I need to have made some type of happening or progress in the studio. I need to work to, mm-hmm. to feel okay, to feel like me, to feel okay, to feel happy, I suppose. So when you, when you made the impulsive move from Dallas to New York... <laughs> oh man, I needed that job. I needed a job so much. Uh, Mark Williams talked to the assistant manager, um, at MoMA, who was Sarah Wood, and was like, this kid is a painter, and he's has some preparatory experience. When at MoMA, you they take you on as a temp, you know, for mm-hmm. a freelance worker, they call you a temp. You've got to have kind of 10 years of experience in order to get hired on full-time there. So I didn't have nearly 10. So I worked as a, as a temp, though, kind of as often as they let me work, which was pretty much all the time. What, was that um, W two? Like, like, did they take the taxes out? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, no, that was a, that was official. That was official work. So I did that at MoMA for three years, and I would keep applying for the full time position, and they just mm-hmm. kept kind of they wouldn't they wouldn't even like talk to me in an interview. Yeah. They saw what I was capable of on the floor preparing exhibitions. I was a, a, generally an assistant to the guys who had been there for a while, but every so often, which was ended up being real often. There's times where they're busy doing something and then you got to go hang this or you got to go do that or you got to hang this. And, and, and I did that stuff. And there was a couple of occasions in which I felt I really proved myself. Why did you leave there after three years? It became clear, you know, again, that it wasn't going to go much further than being a temp. The boss, the, the manager of the art handlers, Rob Jung, he said to me, you know, he took me aside and was like, man, you know, you don't need to only work here you know you Mm -hmm. can work other places you can also work here and work other places but like you should just go out into the world man like get your experience go get your Mm -hmm. your real life experience and I still didn't know what that meant you know I think I was still extremely scared of real life experience because I was still like in college how do I keep this utopia Mm -hmm. going oh well grad school oh and then I was taken under wing by Otis and then the Dallas Museum of Art, it was a nurturing, you know, they were employing me and I was doing work, but it was like they were, yeah, it was a safe space in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. until it wasn't, until it became Mm -hmm. clear, not even necessarily to me, but to those around me, 
that what I was doing was was not right. My my career was really blossoming, and it was I was showing in all over the world, and like. So while you're at MoMA, you're showing all over the world. Yeah, and I mean not really the world. Again, I'd say like Europe. I still haven't extended to like the East East. And I remember one of my first days temping at MoMA. I got an email from a guy teaching a course in Venezuela. Wow. And he was like. Yo, I just want you to basically like I just want you to know that I'm teaching you about your work out here, like in this art history course. Like, oh, that's oh. Cool. yeah, that's really wow. cool. But I was like super taken aback, like, whoa, somebody in Venezuela like even knows mm. who I am. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. So I was like, I remember feeling like really that impacted me a lot because it was like even though I feel lowly on this day to day grind, people there were sure to put me in my place at every chance they got i still felt a real joy for that i was able to be a part of yeah. this mm -hmm. thing where i where anyone even is aware that i exist and and the, the things that i do have some type of meaning for others in in some yeah. way interjecting to remind you about our listener survey the survey will take you less than two minutes it's almost entirely multiple choice and it's entirely anonymous the link is at the very top of the show notes. If you can pause this episode, it will just take a minute to complete. If you can't pause the episode, but you want to take the survey, please do so by Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern time. Now, the link is also available at artisticfinance.com. Okay, back to the interview with Brett. Uh, wait, so what did you do after MoMA? And what are you doing now? 2016. I kind of kind of uh, decided like, all right, let me see what else is out there. Um, I got hired freelance at a gallery, Listen, L-I-S-S-O-N, Listen Gallery, who they were opening up in Chelsea. They were in London for many, many years and then opened up in Chelsea um, in 2016. You don't have to answer this, but how, like, I assume you're paid hourly and how much is that roughly? MoMA, again, was 20, like 13 to 16 and roughly 25 mm -hmm. an hour. Mm -hmm. Listen, roughly the same. Um, where I work now, I started about the same, but I'm at 30 now, 30 an hour. Okay, okay. And are the, all these places, are you working 40 hours a week? At least. At least. Uh, what, what would be the max hours you would work? So the small company I work for now, um, which is called Aston, I pulled up to 70 hours one week. Well, that was a crazy townhouse move out. That we that mm -hmm. we have a non-disclosure yes, sign for. Okay. <laughs> we can't talk about but that. But it townhouse. is crazy. Can't confirm. Crazy. Can't confirm. It is crazy. <laughs> um, okay, so, but it, okay, so question, which is, if you got up to 70 hours, do you get time and a half or anything like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There uh, we go. Absolutely. I make 30, but then my overtime is 45, mm. so it's quite good. Okay. Okay. Cool, cool. We're going to get to the most exciting part. Valuing, valuing art. Because you kind of talked about this earlier, like just seeing like pieces of art. I'm like, how do you put a price to it? Like I understand like the baseline, like the cost of the materials and the labor and all that. So you obviously want to at least break even or make a profit on that but like sure. otherwise like how do you you know determine the value of art for um, example and the visits to my museum like growing up the st louis art museum there is this exhibit of a garden gnome dipped in chocolate and how is that in a museum this is and like a expensive piece of art how i mean it's <laughs> all uh it's all about the artist's career it's about their 
origin and when they began selling their work, the price is created at a certain point. The artist's work starts as however it starts. Then, right, their work evolves or changes. And that sounds like a conceptual work to me.、Um, I know that I know that there's an artist, Vic Muniz, who does a lot of photography of things dipped in chocolate and kind of like、mm. he recreated a scene of like Jackson Pollock, but like in chocolate and a starry night. But made out of chocolate. That I get, but like a garden gnome so, dipped in so, chocolate. So the piece Nicole is talking about, <laughs>、uh, <have> <laughs> it's it's by a Swiss artist named Dieter Roth. Yeah, of course、yeah. it was Swiss. Okay, and no, and it, it is Swiss chocolate. It was sort of a it was a sort of a commentary on like、okay. the perishable food sort of thing. But、um, but I would argue that a Brett Slater piece of art would take much more time to make. Than taking a garden gnome and putting, and putting it, it in chocolate. chocolate. Again, it's all about like, okay, well, Dieter wrote like, where did he come from? What's、oh, his background? What, who did he learn from? What's he doing? And and who's he? You know, who's representing him? What has he made before? Where was that price point at? And who's to say? Or or how can we calculate how? How do you calculate? How how long it took Dieter wrote to to create that like or what you know that's like how do we calculate like you know the amount of time it took him to become who he is and to make and to formulate his concept it's hard to calculate that and and it's maybe one painting of mine takes、uh, longer to make than that sometimes like the thing isn't really. As important as the idea in terms of from what people are buying, you know, some people、uh, when they purchase works are purchasing sometimes a certificate that it、mm. states that you know, but really the the work itself is like a performance piece or and even like Saul Lewitt,、uh, a lot of his works are technically. I mean, he ha- you have to almost have the studio come to make the work at your、mm-hmm. house, but a lot of it is it's just instructions as to like. How to make this thing, this drawing? How to make this drawing on your wall? That's that's a soloit piece. So, what are you paying for the instructions? With it being such an open-ended kind of non-definable realm, what is it that you're then buying, or what is it that's being sold? It's hard to say. It's kind of a it's kind of an idea. It's based upon. Well, I mean, you know, I don't know what his early works were so like. So it depends on the artist and their entire. Career sometimes. Well,、yes. Nicole mentioned this to me, and I went to the St. Louis Art Museum. It, it As, stuck with me, though. I will say, like seeing that, like years ago, like. But I went to look up the piece, and it's actually not on display there at the moment. But when we were growing up, for twenty years, it was always on display, and we knew what gallery it was, we knew what floor, and it、yeah. stuck with us because it's such a unique piece. Very interesting. But when Nicole mentioned it recently, I went to look up the provenance. I guess it was made and then put in a gallery in Germany. And it was there for a year. Then a New York gallery bought it for a year, and then a couple from St. Louis went to New York, purchased it, and then eventually it got to the museum because they gifted it to the museum. Because the piece is from 1969. We were both born '88, so we wouldn't have even seen it to remember、mm-hmm. it until like '98. But it was but, always there. But what I thought was、oh, interesting God, no. was <laughs> that it was so easily trackable back to when it was made. It didn't go through this lineage of. It was sold to a famous person or put in a fa- like it was just gallery, gallery, museum, 
Well, that's the but ideal. Also- that's that's certainly <laughs> ideal. <laughs> so then going back to evaluating art, so you're Brett Slater. You say you're mid-career, is that fair? Yeah. Go well, a lot of people don't know who I am, but so to some people, <laughs> I might hey. be emerging. <laughs> Brett, we have 100 weekly listeners, so now there's 100 people that know who you are, at least. Exactly. No big deal. <laughs> um, well, no, I, I watched a YouTube video in preparation for this about how to price out art. It was speaking to people who are making art and they have to sell it. One of the things is they said uh, there's different methods. And one is you can calculate your hourly time that you put into it. To That's one way. The other way is to value the goods. You know, how much did the materials cost you? Yep. And then times that by like one to five, just depending on where you are. And then the person landed on what they like to do is by the inch. And so they said, what I do is, it's a, if it's a 30 by 30 painting, so that's like 900 square inches, she puts a price on how much per inch, and that's how she gets to the price. If she's selling more or less, she'll adjust the price per inch. How do you determine what to sell your art for? My determination of that, the lineage of that was, it all began with my first dealer, Thomas Robertello from Chicago, who sadly stopped being a dealer. He got my name kind of big because he started showing me and this writer at the time was, um, or, or he still is around Scott Intersect, but what he was writing for that uh, modern painters magazine that was international. And it was a bit respected for a while. Scott liked Thomas's gallery when Thomas added me in 2010 to his like roster of artists Scott was like who got took a took an interest wrote about me and my work and a couple of different galleries in Belgium took mm-hmm. a real interest to me and one gallery took the really proper respectable route contacting Thomas and they said you know hey like we want to show your artist but historically, what the right thing to do was you ask the gallerist, you get their okay, and then you give them at least 10% of sales from the first show, not out of the artist's cut. You know, They would give the artist their 50%, and then out of their 50%, give 10% to the gallery where which they found you. So he kind of guided you into into this? You didn't learn about it in school? Yeah. So Thomas came to my studio. We had a long visit, which started very difficult and very cold. And then by the end of it, totally flipped and became super, super warm, positive connection. He asked me about my pricing and I was super ignorant to it all. And I'm not really like such a super pro-capitalist like guy I don't I the scale thing the the size thing that was a big thing of what everybody told me is part of pricing and I got that but I was really interested in smaller works the same way I was interested in bigger works so I figured everything should be a similar price what no matter what the scale is the truth is is that's just not realistic that's very much an established thing the price is to be determined by the scale he kind of laughed at me when i told him that what i was thinking for in terms of pricing because i you know i was like no matter what the scale is no matter what everything is this and he was like no 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 i can't at the time i was like oh no matter what the the size is or anything everything in here i want it, it to be 950 dollars 
is that that's how much I'm looking to, 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 to get. Some of the works I was making were little, like kind of four and a half, five inch pieces uh, uh, made of tape and cardboard. You know, he was like, you know, man, I just can't sell that for that much money. Like that's no one's going to buy that. He was like, I can start selling these at like 350 for paintings on canvas that I had some, I had a few of as well that were also kind of smaller scale. He's like, well, when you get to that, and then you could start saying like 750, you know? So we started there. I was making a lot of works with cardboard and tape and like drywall and, and kind of odd materials. And those were kind of like three to 500. The paintings on canvas were like 750 and then they would go to like 950. After we made a few sales, then we decided, okay, so, you know, we started rolling. I kind of started veering away from the found stuff. And it wasn't just because I was making less from it. You know, cardboard could like start to deteriorate and can make a, a painting with traditional paint materials. And it can have all of the awesome characteristics. These kind of, I was also kind of finding objects and like painting on them and became something that I was attaching myself to like unnecessarily. It became clear, like you can make something that is pristine and with pristine materials, but you can give it a rough vibe and becoming friends with Otis and talking with Otis more, you know, it was like, yeah, I can do this with painting. I'm a painter at heart and that's where I come from. And that's my intention. And within a year or two years, I went pretty much from working with all found materials and, and lo-fi materials to making paintings. I got it. So you're sort of making the same aesthetic, but not using perishable materials or materials that could give way. Yeah. And, and this pricing, when you were first uh, determining this pricing, were you in Dallas? Were you working with Otis at this time? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I had yet to start working with Otis. I began working with Otis after I had had my first uh, solo exhibition in the project space of Thomas's gallery, which was just a little back room. And did you talk with Otis about pricing? Because presumably you guys showed in galleries together and you both have to price your stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it was something we began to talk about 100%. Um, do you guys sort of like link it together or, or sort of like you you saw how he did it and you said this is how... Thomas told me to do it. He kind of talked to me about it, you know, was kind of just uh, open about it with me and helped guide my understanding of it. How many years you've been, you've been doing it and with each further advancement, like in your career, if a certain museum collects your work, you know, then you can increase. increase. The yeah. Okay. So, so, so this was 11, time. 12 mm -hmm. years ago. What was like the first time you sold a piece? What was your first sale my first sale was out of my studio essentially in college before i had left for uh grad school it was like 2009 um this guy really liked these they were larger scale paintings that i was making it was uh just directly to a to a guy and he wanted these two large paintings and he said he'd give me a thousand in cash for them both. And I was happy to do that because I, I didn't know what I was going to even do with those large paintings when I moved. I couldn't really take them with me. Mm -hmm. Awesome. OK, that's a great first sale. Yeah. I got to say. <laughs> so then now, so flashback year and a half when I approached you about the podcast and I said, we're looking to invest a thousand dollars into art. And I said, you know, could could you sort of create something or, or do you have something around for a thousand dollars that you could, we could use for this investing thing. And you said, yeah, yeah, but I'm not really doing that anymore. 
And so you basically upsold me. So by the way, everyone, Brett, Brett is a little trickster. He's like, oh, I'm not good with money. I don't know how it works. And then I'm like a thousand dollars. And he's like, how about four times that amount? <laughs> um, no, no, but, but, uh, but seriously, how do you determine price point now? And also like, how does it work with a gallery? Cause you said the gallery takes 50%. 50%. So as soon as I started showing with Thomas, it was essentially like, whatever you want to make from this sale, you've got to double that. That's so interesting. I work in um, commercial real estate and it's the same thing in a company. The house takes half of the commission. And so it's the same formula. If you want to make a certain number, you got to double that. But obviously there are reasons that you go through a gallery, right? Yeah. What are, what are the pros between gallery versus selling directly? A major pro is like recognition. That editor, he wouldn't have never seen my work if I never decided to show with Thomas. Visibility. You know, and yeah, visibility for sure. No museum is going to like take interest in your work, most likely, unless it's through a gallery because that's where they're going. Everything right has a certain level of elitism to it right right because you could put your stuff up on etsy or you could sell directly through your website but i guess there's prestige and more eyes or or different eyes different eyes seeing it if you're in a gallery and galleries are well known too like oh brett slater's work is in such and such gallery um that's well known so it might open opportunities you know for other galleries and other people. So I could see the world there. Yeah. Again, museums and yeah. writers, critics, people who are going to pay attention and publicize, mm -hmm. even if what you're after is just to see what art critics have to say, let's say about mm -hmm. your work. They're not going to write about you. Like if you're not showing somewhere, because that's, that's what they do is like go to galleries to see what's up. And then they, write about it like maybe it's the same thing as like not representing yourself in a court of law like you don't speak mm -hmm. the lingo you're gonna have a really tough time because you don't know about this this entire list of things that's available yeah. to utilize but a lawyer would whether it's a good thing or a bad thing or whatever it's the truth is is that mm -hmm. if you really want i think right to to be represented in the best way possible you you're gonna want an aid in a lawyer or it's uh, or an agent if you're in the film or 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 even this podcast we're learning so we've had it for two years but it's like you can't do everything alone and so like we do everything we record it we interview you know we edit it we publish it we run the instagram we run the patreon we run everything about it. Just this year, we are getting a podcast strategist. We're going to put a little money into getting help with the production side of it. It's not really changing anything about the show, but we're getting other people's resources and we're getting their eyes. We're getting a, a different audience. Yes, it's going to cost us a little bit of money, but it's the only way to grow. As an artist, you can make all the paintings you want in a studio but you don't have time to go out and sell it. Not if you want to devote the right time to... Right, and it's maximizing the best use of your time is creating art. Totally. Yeah. I mean, how does it look to... There are, there are bigger artists out there who have decided against showing with gallery, like David Hammonds, Richard Prince. Prince is represented, but he has negotiated with his gallerist Gagosian that he's also allowed to do private sale, which it's not, or it's kind of frowned upon. Like if mm -hmm. you're doing that, because then why do you buy the gallery? Because then why do you need us if you're just selling your own stuff? But when you're at the level of Richard Prince and 
you can do that because you're wanted enough uh, and valuable enough. He doesn't need a gallery. I mean, he has one, and but he doesn't need one necessarily, right. mm-hmm. kind of any anymore. But that's not that common of a thing. It's very, very rare. When you get a gallery to represent you or show your work, what does the agreement look like that you sign? Because you mentioned that you couldn't sell a, do a private sale if you're in a gallery. If it's in town and like it's to somebody else who's in town and they're in the same town, it's like, why are you even using us then if you're just going to be making private sales kind of like, but it's not like you're not allowed to necessarily. Um, because I remember when I reached out to you, you had a showing down in Soho or Tribeca. Anyway, we didn't go through a gallery because I reached out to you and I was like, will you do this? And you were sort of like, yeah, and you weren't like hush hush about it, but you weren't like, let's broadcast this to the world and don't let the gallery know. <laughs> and now they're going to know. Well, that's all right. I mean, I'm, I'm not 100% like pinned down anywhere right now, but I am working towards that. So we've sort of watched your progress over the last 12 years, and we've seen you show in Chelsea, like Tribeca. You've shown in Dallas, I know Italy and Portugal, I think. And you mentioned Switzerland, Zurich. How do you, starting from nothing, how do you find a gallery? Like, how do you get a gallery to take you on? Well, it was all different types of ways. I had the luck of uh, being published in this thing called New American Paintings. It's like a competition that that, that then gets published. For me, then Thomas picking me up was like, uh, led to the next thing. So it was like a very much like luck of circumstance for other people. They can go to, you can go to openings and you make yourself known to galleries somehow. And then, so like the Switzerland one, did your connection there come from being in that magazine? They had seen me with a Belgian dealer who found me in that in, in modern painters, which, which Scott wrote about, which, where, 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 yeah. which is where Scott wrote about me from seeing me in, in Thomas's uh, gallery. So you got into Thomas's gallery and then somebody put you in a magazine from there and then another gallery reached out from the magazine. How again did you get to Thomas? Like, how did he find you? New American Paintings I was in, Thomas found me. And then Scott, who was writing for Modern Painters, he then wrote about me from, from there. And then that was how I got this dealer got um, in Brussels. And then that was how my gallery in Zurich found me was through the um, gallery in Brussels. So how did you get in that initial magazine? It was a competition and I just uh, applied to it and I got in. Because you're saying it's all luck of the draw, but you entered a competition, things picked up from there and went from there. So that's a good start. So inviting gallerists to your studio to see your work and then sort of try to convince them to put you into their showing? That's kind of the classic way, yeah. Like It clearly worked for you because you can see the path of one to another to another. Have you done that? Has that worked for you? Just recently, like I had a dealer, a gallerist come through to the studio and it was a success. We're going to we're going to have a show. I don't know when because it it's kind of on me now to make a bunch of things. Can we be your press agency of for this show? So we're announcing on Artistic <laughs> Finance Brett Slater has a show. world premiere Woo! of Brett Slater's newest show. <laughs> Sometime. It'll happen sometime. All right. It's going to be in New York? Yes. Okay. Cool. All right. We'll be there. On on Grand Street. Okay. So, but that's the first time that you've ever just invited a gallerist over and then gotten into a show? Back in Dallas, I then invited a few dealers over. I had a really good connection with one of them, Marty Walker. She was 
ready to show me and I was ready to show with her and it, and it worked out pretty nicely. So that was the first time I did that was back in Dallas, but I had already had the, um, I guess it gave me extra, it gave me confidence, you know, that I had other, and also, especially that I was showing overseas, like it it made me feel Mm -hmm. pretty good. So I invited dealers and Marty Walker was a great dealer. She stopped dealing the same year Thomas, Thomas stopped dealing in 2014, oh, which a blow to Brett's career. Oh, Jeez. It was a big, it was a big um, change. And I don't know if you'd say a setback, but I went from having three galleries to having one gallery. It was a bummer. It was a bummer. Yeah. yeah no, no way the right people and <laughs> relationships. I mean, no matter where you are, it's so critical. So, okay. So, so what I picked up from this was you entered a competition and that helped you pick up steam and eventually get into a gallery um, and then you invited gallerists over and that helped you get into a gallery as well um, and then for pricing wise it's really the gallerists at least at the beginning that helped you price yeah totally you know he had a great mind for this kind of a thing and he just kind of was like are you okay with me like setting the price and then and I was like yeah please like I need guidance so he set the prices showed me what they were then my second show came up and by that time the price had increased quite a bit. We were selling the paintings for like, you know, seven fifty, and then the paintings were like thirteen hundred by the time my first show rolled around. Yeah. And actually we should mention that your prices now, of course, are even more than that. As as shows succeeded, as people bought the work, it just became okay, well, is it time to go up? If people are buying for it, then yeah. Yeah. And then the Dallas Museum of Art acquired a piece in 2000. I think it was 13, but it might've been 12. Whenever that happened, it was like, all right, then let's go up because of that. And then just kind of like, oh, well then this, this, this important person or that important person has bought, you've gotten great reviews here and there and your shows keep selling out. So we've got to go up. So is that the gallery when you're doing the gallery showings? Are they the ones that are sort of setting the price points for you and with you? No, no, no. At first, Thomas, my first dealer, yeah, he showed me the way in terms of my pricing. But the gal, I will, whereas, yeah, it's been on me to make the final call, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's often been at least one of, of my gallerists saying, all right, it, we've got to raise the prices, you know, and then I'm like, uh, well, are you sure? Because then I don't know if like this person or that person can, you know, I, I don't want to like limit myself too much. And then it's like, they got to remind me, you actually limit yourself by staying low because then a lot of people out there, a lot of collectors like don't even want to move unless it's like a certain price. And I haven't even met those collectors yet because my stuff's probably been too low for them. But then there's been at the same time, there's been people that come through, you know, like this one gallery in New York I had for a little while, there was a, a larger piece that I had um, that I was pricing at 7000 Apparently, there was one guy that that came through there that he wouldn't pay more than than five for it. He was like, no, no, I'd buy that. But if it was only if it was 5000 I'd buy it. We were kind of like, uh, you don't want to go down in price just because that's what this person or that person says. Okay, so you're, you're sort of priced out. To me, you're paintings are expensive. <laughs> like if anybody's going to buy one, they really have to think about it. Cuz even when you started like 350, that's a, a significant amount. You know, it's it's not about the money blah blah blah, but what's the lowest price painting you have for sale now? Like maybe something that is an older piece. Um I kind of make like things in in like the 8 inch range like that 
would be like I think it's twenty five hundred now for one. Okay. Like and things are that are in more like the ten inch range, which because of the way that I think about it, when it gets to like that scale, I also make them a bit thicker too. And so those are those are more like three thousand thirty two hundred. Once you go to uh like a maybe twenty inch range and and like that can can be more like five mm-hmm. grand and then mm-hmm. um things bigger than that somewhere like six and seven so yeah. just going back just to clarify you didn't learn any of this in school they don't teach you anything about how to price anything i Seems think they did teach me that about the 50 per- <laughs> the 50 percent thing well that is I, important I, and significant I, I, i'm actually so. glad we're talking to you about that because i again was doing some research on this and online People say, oh, it's 30 to 40% depending or up to 50%. The reality is seems like it's 50-50. Like the people that get 30, 40 mm-hmm. people who are established. And you can't negotiate then... that unless maybe you are established. Established, yeah. Okay. I because mean, I, I suppose I... you could negotiate it depending on who you are. You know, you could. It's just I don't know if the gallerist would really go for it. Right. Yeah. So, so if there's anybody listening now that when they first worked with a gallery and got more than 50%, please email me at artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com. We because know. I don't think that happens. I think it's 50-50 for everybody. As far uh, as I've even, heard. If it yeah. wasn't, then everyone would be going to that other gallery for you know more of a cut, right? So it's got to be somewhat standardized. Okay, so Brett, we have talked super long. And I have to cut this down to an hour. So I really wanted to talk about the Italy story because it's such a good story. All right, Brett. So I'm going to try to wrap up in eight minutes here. I'm going to do like a fire round of just for fun questions. What is the most expensive piece of art that you have handled? <laughs> like la- really recently, as in like a week and a half ago, um, it was right after um, a Basquiat on canvas sold for like 85 million. I yeah, have recently handled a Basquiat that's like wow. um, a, a hundred million or more. I don't even know if that compares to like some of the stuff that I handled in like the Picasso, like sculpture mm-hmm. retrospective at MoMA. Like there could be things that are way more valuable there. MoMA was really good at you when you, when you're working in a museum, like you just kind of are aware that what you're, it's like, priceless in a sense even though there is a price attached to it like the stuff is also kind of like invaluable it's like so valuable that it's that it's priceless you know yeah so i helped with um monet the water lilies like enormous triptych that's yeah huge and so the scale has something to do with price which we know that it does who -hmm. knows how much that was worth right i also I, i also um installed at MoMA Kazmir Malevich's uh, White on White, which is just really a small painting. But that I know is whew, in the, I don't know how, I, but I forget if it was tens of millions or how, how but it's up there. And, um, oh, I, I, wow. I handled like a Pollock's like cathedral um, number one. That's also mm-hmm. like super up there. Not only are you installing and handling art, but you're installing art that's yeah. priceless and, yeah. and, and historically okay. important and yeah ta- mm-hmm. talking about the water lilies i know this is sort of like not everybody can afford to go to paris and go to museums the water lilies there is a museum there lingerie yes that right it's two oval rooms that monet does you know designed 
to have water lilies. lilies. And then he put in oval water lilies. That was an immersive experience. Yeah, immersive before immersive existed. The museum is small. So in a way, it's like there's so much to see in Paris. Why would I go to this museum with just two water lily rooms? Mm -hmm. But it's like, no, because the artist planned it this way. Here it is 100 years later. It's still that way. and, And it's simple and easy. But that's just another example of like I prefer smaller museums or things like that. Where it's like, yeah, I'm not going to see everything. I'm not going to see Egyptian art and Asian art and all this other stuff. But I'm seeing a very specific sort of lens. So I highly recommend that museum for anyone. Thank you. No, I had no idea. I'm going to check that out if I go next time I go uh, to Paris, it's, you know, for sure. It's near the Louvre. And it's yeah. a little overshadowed by that. <laughs> but, but well worth it. But I mean, it's again, it takes half an hour. And they threw, I think they added a little wing and they added a couple other paintings just to make it worth people, people's while. Um, okay all right (laughs) last question for you which is what's your social media handle um i have an instagram at brett slater and brett only has one t in it so b-r-e-t-s-l-a-t-e-r pulling up his instagram you have antiquated mechanism of predetermined fate right there on instagram yeah there she is i need to go like that that photo (laughs) (laughs) that's in a super awesome private collection i hear (laughs) Brett, well, you're going to have to come back because you have a story about being an artist in residence in Italy. It is such a good story. I think you learn as an artist things from that story, pricing and paying of rents and how galleries like or how different arts organizations work. So I a crazy story. It's it's such a that's actually why I reached out to you initially for this was for that story. I want to hear the story. Also, you taught me today that the artist is named Dieter Roth, not Dieter Roth. Okay, so Brett, thank you so much for giving. I mean, we talked for three hours here. Yeah, thank you guys for having me, really. That's it for this week's episode. My takeaways are connections and relationships matter. They can direct you to the right graduate program, introduce you to a mentor, and get your art displayed in galleries. But notice, the relationships started because Brett took action. Put yourself out there. Brett participated in a competition which connected him to a gallerist and that helped him in pricing his art and being shown in galleries. Galleries take 50% of the profits. Now knowing that helps set expectations for when you land your first gallery show. Yes, the gallery takes 50%, that's half of the profit, but there are benefits to selling with a gallery. Those benefits include your artwork being on display, introductions to the gallerist's connections, and collaboration on pricing, plus the reality of having had a show in a gallery. Artists value their work based on the length of their career and their overall accomplishments, not the cost of the material or the hours of labor. Size plays a part, Bigger means more expensive, but there's a lot of context about a work that creates the monetary value of what someone will pay for it. Brett mentioned a painting that someone offered to buy for $5,000, though the gallery was selling it for $7,000. Brett did not lower that price, and the painting has remained unsold. Brett told us the painting later got photographed in the New York Times, and even that still didn't help it get sold. So, did you learn anything today? And has listening to Brett's story given you motivation, perhaps, to enter a competition or reach out to a gallerist? If you have any thoughts about today's discussion, email me at artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com. That email comes directly to me, and I do read and respond to every email. 
Nicole and I record these episodes from our apartment and we send them out to the world, but we don't actually know if we're having any sort of impact. So it would be fantastic if you have a minute to send us a message and let us know how we're doing. Speaking of how we're doing, have you taken the listener survey? It's the link at the very top of the show notes. Please complete it by this Friday, June 10th. That's when we're meeting our podcast strategist. We will use your surveys to structure the show moving forward. It's multiple choice and will take less than two minutes to complete. Thanks in advance. And you can also find that link at artisticfinance.com. Speaking of our podcast strategist, part of the discussion is how to utilize the money we receive from you, our Patreon patrons. 25% of our income goes out to other artists and arts organizations. So thank you to our patrons who are empowering us to do this. This week's bonus episode is another hour with Brett. We discuss how taxes work when selling through a gallery, how Brett's finances changed when he got married, the backstory of how Nicole and I obtained three Brett Slater paintings, Brett's thoughts on NFTs, his decision process for going to grad school and for working with Otis Jones, and the artists that have influenced his work. Access those outtakes at patreon.com slash artistic finance. We would absolutely love it if you chose to join us. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Make sure to subscribe. To access our show notes, transcripts, or resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.